This is episode 54 of the Great Speech Podcast on How to Communicate in the Boardroom, an interview with my friend Ekene Ezuliki. Leaders lead. Leaders make big calls, right? Make big decisions. Leaders have vision. Leaders galvanize a team, right, towards an outcome that's a more dramatically impactful outcome than, you know, where they are today. And I think if a leader spends kind of time and time again not providing direction, it's a problem. It's a great speech podcast for the public speakers. We're going way down deep to look at what makes a communicator. We'll look at all different topics from the bottom to the top. So get your mind free of all the distractions and please listen up, listen up, listen up. It's the Great Speech Podcast. 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 Thanks, Dad. So welcome back. Welcome back, my great communicators. How are you guys doing? I hope you are well. Uh, yes, this is me again, your host, Kolarilisho Nike, communication super skills coach, bringing you another episode in my epic journey search for an answer to the question of how can we be better communicators. And this week is a first for me on this podcast because I am interviewing a friend. Uh, now, I make friends with uh, lots of my guests who've been on this podcast, but this is the first because this is a person who was a friend before, uh, who in fact, I've been friends with him uh, since we first met at the Dome nightclub on our first night as, as freshers at Birmingham University way back in 1991. Shout out to my Birmingham people. Uh, this is Dr. Ekene Ezulike, who well, yeah, so he and I, we've been best men at our weddings. I'm godfather to his eldest son. Uh, I bought a house in North London basically because of his recommendation. Then, of course, he moved to, to uh, America. Yes, cheers, mate. Uh, but I'm really pleased and proud to be interviewing him because I've wanted to do, to do an episode on what it's like to communicate at the highest levels in the boardroom, uh, in the corporate world for quite a while. And it kind of really fits the mold. He has worked at the highest level in the investment banking and financial services world for years. And, you know, we're talking about the kind of places that make billion dollars, but billion dollar decisions uh, every day, uh, the kind of decisions that move markets or, you know, transform sectors, that kind of level. Uh, and I knew he'd be perfect for giving us an insight into communicating in that world especially because for me, he's actually really an example of success that comes through sheer dint of hard work. Uh, ever since I've known Akena, he's been driven. Uh, in fact, it's a little bit embarrassing because I still remember coming back from nightclubs at about four o'clock in the morning uh, in Birmingham in our, in our university days. And he'd be there waking up to read the financial pages and The Economist, right? Always made me, made me feel like, oh goodness, what am I doing? Uh, you know, he's an incredibly humble guy. Uh, you know, he's got a doctorate, which means he can use the doctor moniker, but he really almost never does, uh, which is really unusual, by the way, because we're both Nigerians. And in Nigeria, you use all the monikers you have. 
you know, I'll hear people introduced as chief, Mrs. Dr. Engineer, so-and-so, MSc, PhD, MBA, right? We like our titles in Nigeria, but Ekene's really never been about that. He's really just been about getting things done. Uh, and as a result, he has risen. Uh, he's one of the highest uh, level or one of the uh, black men who's risen to the highest level in that corporate world. And so it was really interesting in this episode because we talk about all things communication at that high leadership level. We talk about what's the mindset you need to approach to or to use to approach handling big decisions, uh, what to do when you make the wrong decision. Uh, of course, we touch on things like the difference between a leader and a manager, uh, how to communicate through conflict. Uh, it's interesting to hear what he studies when he's in the boardroom that helps him communicate effectively. And also his perspective on how to deal with poor performance. And it was interesting, I put to him a proposition of how Steve Jobs kind of approached team building and he disagreed with it, or at least he had an alternative approach or, or thought pattern, which I really loved. And of course, he exemplifies in the way he builds his teams, the fact that he cherishes diversity, which is fantastic, of course, as well. So just on every level, I really enjoyed this interview. Lots and lots of great little tips from Ekene, but de delivered in his kind of understated, humble way. So I think it's an episode that you will enjoy, full of golden nuggets. So as always, uh, sit back, whatever you're doing. A lot of people listen to this in the car, uh, I hear. So uh, concentrate on the road, uh, but listen up because I think you'll enjoy this interview. I certainly did. Uh, here's me and my friend, Ekene. Okay, welcome back, my great communicators. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that I have Ekene Ezulike with us today. He is calling in from New Jersey, I believe. Ekene, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Hello, fellow communicators and people who want to learn how to be better communicators. Yes, indeed, sir. And so I never, I won't, shouldn't admit this, but this is take two because, of course, I forgot to click the record button because that's how professional, <laughs> professional I am at this. Um, but uh, I know you're a friend, so you'll forgive me. Listen, uh, I always start with getting my guests to give their quote of the episode. Uh, saying, proverb, whatever that is, something that means something to you. So uh, what is yours and why? Um, the one um, that I would pick out is um, um, a proverb statement, quote, um, that somebody who I care a lot about once said to me, um, which was, in life, you've got to live with purpose. Um, why, that, what, why that really resonated to me was that, you know, in life, you've got to be intentional in what you do. In life, you've got to seek to have experiences which enriches you, right? You know, your family, your friends, right? Um, and also, um, you know, in life, you need to be disciplined and focused in order to kind of get to the purpose, whatever that purpose may be. And purpose might be different things. It might be, you know, if you're an academic, it might be you want to be a professor. If you're, you know, a business person, it might be that you want to be a board member, a CEO, or if it's in your personal life, it might be that you want to, you know, have a great relationship with your wife and kids and spend huge amounts of time cultivating, growing them, developing. So that really resonated. And why why this individual had such a big impact is she's somebody who, you know, had survived cancer and in surviving cancer, kind of recalibrated a lot around what life was about, you know, what her purpose was, 
And she was very intentional in the choices that she made in her life and also in her career that ultimately led her to being a board member, uh, the last financial institution that I worked in. And also since then, um, she's been a non-executive board member for many, many, many different organizations. She founded a foundation, support people who are um, surviving cancer through art. So very, very brilliant um, person, very brilliant woman. And uh, that really resonated with me. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible the, the, the number of people or companies that have arisen uh, or done something different or special out of disaster, catastrophe, uh, difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I hear what you say about um, this lady uh, for you. Although I have to say that in terms of the importance of being disciplined, uh, you have always been someone that I've looked at as always disciplined. I remember from being a university and coming back clubbing and you're there getting up in the morning reading your economists. It's like you've always seemed <laughs> to me to be a disciplined and driven person. Uh, is that something that has been in you naturally? Was that from your upbringing? Where do you think that came from? I think a lot of it um, came from, um, you know, my father, my late father, who, um, you know, very, very early age, at the age of two, he lost his father. Um, you know, when he was in the early teens, he lost his mother. And he had to figure a lot of about life out with his kind of twin brother and also his half sister. And he managed to have incredible success. He got a scholarship, studied in the UK, came back um, to Nigeria and built, um, you know, a construction company, which in the eastern Nigeria, where I come from, um, was kind of pretty strong company at the time. And he had nothing, right? But what he did have at a very early age, what that sense of what his purpose was, and he was one of the most disciplined people um, that I've ever known um, in my life. So in many respects, I guess it's my gene pool. In many respects, it's driven by my admiration for my father. Um, and I think ultimately, my view is that if he had such a tough start and managed to accomplish so much, both um, in his commercial endeavors, but also in his family life, I felt um, that given the platform that him and my mother gave me, um, that I could be equally as focused, equally as disciplined, equally as intentional to get to, um, you know, a broader purpose in my life and my career. Interesting. So I I was going to ask you, I was going to make a point of asking you, uh, at what do you consider to be your superpower? What is it that if there was one thing you could point to that has meant, led to you getting to the position that you have gotten to, and I want to ask you exactly what that is in a second, uh, what that would be. So would it be that be intentional thing or was there something else you would identify? I'd identify that I'm, I'm one of um, those people who no matter how bad a situation is, no matter how much heat you're receiving from people, no matter kind of the broader uh, kind of environment that you're in, when things are going badly, I remain unbelievably calm. And um, actually one of the things that I'll tell you is a funny story is um I flew um, with a bunch of senior colleagues to assess a particular situation um, in a location in the Americas. And um, my new boss um, didn't particularly like um, kind of the answer that I was given. So I spent a two-hour plane journey being grilled um, by my boss around 
you know, kind of the strategy that I was driving, whether it made sense. And I was completely calm mm. under pressure. And the other senior person on the plane pulled me up after we landed um, and after my boss had moved on and sort of said, how on earth did you manage to sort of like keep this sense of calm? And I also sort of say to people, I'm like one of those people where you're a swan yeah. that kind of sails serenely over um, and expands the water, but below the surface, I'm thrashing it out like hell. Um, so that's my superpower. And we see it, you know, when there was a pandemic that hit, it impacted the sort of the team that I run. And we were able to sort of like make great strides very, very quickly because I was cool, calm, mm. and collected. So that's my superpower. You and Katanji Brown-Jackson, I've just been watching the Senate hearings <laughs> and the stuff that they're throwing She's amazing. Her, she's just maintained she's amazing. her equ- equanimity and her equilibrium is incredible. So, uh, and that, so that's a great superpower to have. Uh, so so tell me, I want, one thing I want you to help me with um, – and which I think will be useful to our listeners. So one of the difficulties, I think, if you're not in that environment is understanding the kind of the corporate hierarchy and structure, because there's president, the CEO, there's directors, the managing directors, vice presidents, presidents, chairpersons. So in the kind of, I guess, hierarchy pyramid, where do you sit? What's kind of your level? What, What should we, how should we understand where you are? So in um, financial institutions, such as the one that I work in, the managing director role is, is, is the quote-unquote grade, right? That is the highest grade within the organization. Um, but not all managing directors are equal because, you know, a managing director can occupy a role that's this small. A managing director can, um, you know, have a role that is absolutely kind of vast um, within the organization. So I would sort of say that managing director is there, but it becomes what is the pursuit, or at least for me, kind of going back to living with purposes, mm-hmm. you know, how close can you get um, to, quote unquote, the sun? Um, and that then, the hierarchy then kicks in is that, you know, the CEO has a bunch of direct reports, the di- bunch of direct reports have a bunch of direct reports. So the role um, that I'm in at the moment, I report into somebody who reports into the CEO, um, so right. in many respects, um, I'm, I'm kind of crawling up the corporate ladder and the corporate hierarchy and uh, hoping that one day that I'll get pretty close to the top table of any organization I choose to serve. And at that level, I assume or I believe that mm-hmm. as you get higher and higher, uh, unfortunately, you will see fewer and fewer uh, black men mm-hmm. and women. Is that right? And if mm-hmm. so, how does that feel? Um, yeah, no, I think it is um, right, whether it's in corporate America um, or in the UK or around the world. Um, you will see the, the upper echelon um, of a lot of organizations in the Western world um, that there is, you know, a lot of work to do around kind of having senior ranks being represented in the community they serve in. Um, so, you know, my previous financial organization, uh, financial organization, I think I was the only, I think I was one of three wow. um, black MDs right. in an organization with 100,000 people, which in many <laughs> respects means that if you need role models of yeah. what, um, you know, of what you could become in the future, there clearly weren't many yeah. role models that looked like me. 
um, which made it kind of interesting. Um, but I would sort of say that I was always focused on, again, the whole notion of living with purpose. I was always focused on being somebody who can achieve as much as my potential, right? And that's something that's always driven me. It's the same way that I sort of tell my children, I don't care whether you're kind of great at soccer, I don't care whether you're um, academically brilliant. For me, if somebody goes in and in their life have given 120, 130%, whatever, right? For me, they have done as much as they could potentially do and achieved as much. So what I don't know is what potential mm. I truly have, but what I am doing is working very hard right. to make sure that when I do leave, whether it's a corporate environment or I do leave this earth or I do leave, you know, kind of situations that I mean, I've done the best um, that I can. And that's what guides me a lot in my life. So tell me about the pressure of that level. So I, I, when I say how to communicate in the boardroom, I'm talking about how to communicate, interact with other people who are all high achievers in pressured situations where you are dealing with massive scale. So, you know, billions rather than a couple of thousand here and there, uh, or consequential decisions need to be made that could change the trajectory of the company, that kind of thing. What is that like? Um, it's, it's funny. It's, it's a great question. Um, and it's kind of funny that I've gone through phases in my career where I thought, oh, my God, there's no way I could do this particular job, right? Um, or you're in a job, and it's what the Americans, I think, call imposter syndrome. Yeah. I remember when I first heard it, when I started living in America, I was like, imposter syndrome, what's that? Then thankfully, Google exists. Mm -hmm. I Googled it and figured out what exists. It's just this notion that actually somebody or is is better qualified to do something than I am. So I think as you sort of grow and develop in, in your world, I will sort of say leaders are never ready for the next role. Okay. Right? Um, I also sort of said that there's always this notion that they have to be ready, and you often hear it that they're not ready to get to the next level. I'm not sure about that. I see so many people who have almost excluded themselves from certain experience because, quote, unquote, they're not ready. So I'm somebody that's literally hopped from one very um, different role to the other. I've run kind of procurement globally for a firm. I've, before then, I was a CFO for infrastructure. I'm not particularly good at math. <laughs> um, and then now I've jumped into a role that's radically different. And I think leaders is about the qualities that you have and the qualities you bring to the table and not necessarily, you know, you're ready or size and scale and whatever. I think that if you've got natural leadership ability, I think there's an opportunity for you to figure stuff out if you know how to lead teams, if you know how to drive outcomes. Do you get scared sometimes, though, when you do have to make a decision that you know billions ride on or it it's going to you know it, there's not going to be any hiding place because that's one of the things i always think about is at that level mm. there's, no, there's no hiding place you can't really blame oh that was somebody else's fault or problem mm. it's the buck stops with you what you know what's how does that feel i'm trying to get an insight into whether it's just hey it's like any other decision or no there is a difference no, I think you, you've got to, when you're making a big decision, you always have the sort of the, the nerves, which I think is actually quite good because when you're nervous about something, you're constantly 
kind of looking at themes, at least for me, I look at things from different perspectives, different angles to kind of understand whether or not the decision I'm about to make, which ultimately has impact, is the right one. But what I've learned to do, and again, this is that same lady that gave me that analogy of living with purpose, is that you've got to trust your instinct um, around stuff. Because I'm a deeply analytical person, but I used to look for the 99 percentile of data before I could make a decision. And one thing she taught me was actually, Kenne, when you have 70, 80% of that, right, you've synthesized a lot, right? You probably have a hunch. And the second thing she sort of said that even if you make a decision that it's the wrong decision, you always have an opportunity to correct that decision. But making no decision in itself, <laughs> especially if you're leading a right. large team in itself is probably more pro- problematic. So I've been in situations where I've made decisions that ultimately um, haven't been the right decisions, but I've made them the right decisions because I've then worked to fix whatever issues that came out of those decisions. So I think I'm, I just think I encourage people, right, um, be analytical, um, um, you know, trust your instinct, be bold, and also recognize that in our world, when you fall down off your bike, right, somebody will come there, you know, they'll put some ointment on your leg, put a plaster on it, and the next day, guess what? You have another go. And that's the sort of the mentality that I have, that, you know, decisions can be, if wrong or initially wrong, can actually be in turn to being the right decisions with time. So that's that's a, that's a good perspective in terms of trusting your instinct, because I think you're right. There probably comes a point when you've already gotten as much data as you probably need. You can always get more. But at some mm. stage, there has to be something that says there's no clear path, but a decision has to be made. I've got to go with what something inside me is saying is the right approach and then live with it, right? Yeah, I, I would sort of say it's like leaders have to lead. Right. I keep saying this to people. There's a very big difference between a manager and a leader. Leaders lead. Leaders make big calls, Right make big decisions. Leaders have vision. Leaders galvanize a team, right, towards an outcome Mm. that's a more dramatically impactful outcome than, you know, where they are today. And I think if a leader spends kind of time and time again not providing direction, it's a problem. Because if you have a large team around you um, or you work with a large team or you interact with, um, you know, very senior people, people want you to have clarity of thought right, clarity of what it takes to turn that thought into execution focus. So that's what I sort of say to people, like, again, and I keep coaching members of my team and in the past, like, you know, if done enough, just make the call right. and galvanize people towards making that the right call make versus the call. paralysis. Yeah. yeah. At that level, it presumably means you are surrounded by other high achievers all also very mm-hmm. driven, also very talented, all also with mm-hmm. presumably big egos. How do you address or deal with conflict, which I assume must arise at certain points, disagreements? Yeah, I think um, first thing I'd sort of say is that I remember when I used to see people senior in the organization, I thought, oh my God, they must be better than me. But as you know, Colin, we're Nigerians and our parents all taught <laughs> yep. us nobody's, nobody's you're as smart as any person. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's better than you. And that's the mentality I bring to it. Um, so I would sort of say that in situations where you deal with senior people um, and, you know, there is a disagreement, it becomes how can you find 
even when there is disagreement, some commonality that gives you that thread to sort of take that conflict into something that's then an opportunity for you to fix it. And I've had so many sort of situations um, as I've kind of progressed in my career where I've had a major disagreement with somebody or conflict with somebody, but I always look for, you know, what are the common threads that are even there that you can then work on to sort of improve it. And in some cases, you know, big egos, to your point, you have people who are egoistic. And one of the things that I always sort of say to people, whenever you kind of get together with somebody and you see their big ego, it becomes like, what can you do to make them feel they've won in a situation that you can walk away? And that's what I'm constantly doing. And I'm a real student um, in the room in terms of in a meeting room where people are debating. I'm watching people, watching their body language, watching when somebody kind of nods slightly or where somebody just kind of raises their outbreak because it gives you signals dynamically around how you can then respond or how you can capitalize on a thought or get others to kind of like align to what you're saying to then allow you to move forward. So I think also one of the things I will say to people is in settings where seemingly things are tough, always look for signals, right, in the room, in the moment, uh, that kind of gives you that opportunity to <laughs> notionally get a, what looks like a disaster into sort of a, a win oh. for yourself, your team, yeah. whatever. Uh, which 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 kind of uh, sits with one of the biggest or most important communication skills I'm always emphasizing to people, which is the skill mm-hmm. of deep listening, paying attention mm-hmm. to what somebody is saying, what they're not saying, what they're doing, mm-hmm. how they're doing it. Because very often the key to whatever it is you're looking for is in those moments, in those signals, Completely. as you describe Completely. As you described, yeah. No, I I call it active um, listening. Um, And, you know, there's a bunch of people who are just not good at it. But I've always been, as you know, I'm one of those people who's a little like Floyd Mayweather. If anybody knows boxing, Colin loves boxing (laughs) and we're part of it. He's constantly in a boxing match, right? You know, people are fighting, you know, his opponent's firing blows, but he's constantly, you can see him kind of watching that person like took an additional breath then. That person literally, when they did that punch, this didn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, in the moment, the reason the person's probably one of the best boxers ever, I won't debate it with you, who is the best boxer ever, because you beat me at the argument, is um, he was always kind of looking for angles, right? They'll allow him to capitalize. And that's what I sort of think of people in the moment. You're looking for those cues, real life in a meeting around how you can navigate um, difficult people, difficult situations. But having said that, it's a learned experience. It's not right. like I figured it out 20 years ago. It's figured it out by being in those environments and just kind of imbibing and soaking up yeah. the learnings from that. Now, that's dealing with, I guess, peers or maybe seniors. What about mm. dealing with, because as a leader, you what size of team mm. do you deal with? What's your kind of what size? What size of the team do I manage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I manage, I manage a team of 450 people, right. but also... I have vendors who support what we do of, I think, 6,000. Right. So I think if you look at end-to-end, it's like a big team, but a lot of it's outsourced vendor staff. Right. Um, I think my team's 93% outsourced, which is, some people might sort of say it's crazy, but, you know, that's how I like it. Yeah. So that presumably means that you must have many occasions when you have somebody who is having difficulties or isn't performing uh, or needs mm-hmm. to be corrected mm-hmm. or challenged. 
How do you approach mm-hmm. that from that leadership point of view? So I would, like if it's somebody that's, say somebody that reports to me, somebody that's critical to my organization, because when you have 450 people or 50 people or 100, you can't focus on everybody, mm. right? Um, so the reality is that if, if somebody's a critical talent or somebody's an elevated role that's important for your broader organization, I will always seek to understand are there kind of situations that are kind of causing that person to sort of pull poorly perform when perhaps in the past right they didn't they performed very very well so i think context is important understanding the context of people their situation what they're going through etc so spending time to understand that um, i think is important but also recognizing like i've had situations where i've had spectacular things (laughs) that have gone wrong in my career where you know you could sort of say that i didn't perform something well and i was given a chance Um, to effectively sort of rectify that. I was given a chance to learn from that as well. So I think as a leader, you're constantly sort of looking at sort of things from different perspectives and angles to understand whether there are situations that, you know, kind of underlies the performance. But ultimately, if somebody isn't performing and they're in a role that's important to you and it's something that's happening time and time again, as a leader, you've got to take action because ultimately your team, right, it is a reflection on you. If you have a weak team, a poor performing team, this is what I always tell people, right? You know, if your team are all kind of positioned as being weak and not being strong, people assume that Akane is not strong mm. because your team's weak. Right. And that's why I also sort of say to people, it's always better to have a team that's stronger than you. And in some cases, I've even hired people who are earning significantly more than me because oh, wow. they brought critically they brought critical skills and capability that, you know, has ultimately allowed my organization to achieve the outcomes that we're driving towards, but ultimately is a reflection on me. So that's how I view it. So, I mean, hiring somebody that is earning more than you, that feels like the kind of thing that might affect your ego if you let it. How how do you not let it affect you? Um, I always believe that even if you hire somebody that's paid more than you, um, at some point in time, you know, if the organization doesn't fix it, you'll fix it. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But ultimately, my focus is on I want the best possible people in my team that allow my team to be successful. And if my team is successful, it means that ultimately we're delivering something of value to the firm. If we're delivering something of value to the firm, and I'm ultimately the leader um, of that group, then it gives me more leverage. It gives me more optionality. Um, so that's why I don't typically sort of like get stressed about it. Just it is what it is. And, you know, um, and, you know, it'll always correct itself at some point in time because everybody knows that if you're only less than the team and your team's doing well, I mean, they've got to fix it. Otherwise you leave and find right. an organization that kind of compensates you better uh, than where you're at at the moment. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, in, so it's actually... It's taking a, a longer-term view uh, of your situation and kind Completely. of trusting that it will work out. Now, I've always made um, material investments, especially in my last organization, where um, there's an organization that you know faced um, a huge amount of challenges over the years. But what I was getting was very different roles that were giving me different skills and tools that I would sort of say make would kind of Maybe you'd be a better 
um, leader. And so what I was doing was effectively investing in the experience, knowing that the experience at some point in time will pay for itself. So I had offers in my last institution from this people I said no, because I was getting the diversity experience. And that's what I sometimes sort of say to people is um, chasing money alone <laughs> may not give you the experience of what you want. I'm very clear on where I'd like to get to um, in my career. And it's about, the, to my point earlier about living with purpose, it's about the experiences that you're gaining that allows you to get there. And sometimes those experiences may not pay you as much as another experience, but it might give you the diversity you need to build and evolve your career. I think it's, was it Daniel Pink? I can't remember, but he talked about the three elements that people need once they have enough money uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, to satisfy their needs. It's mastery, autonomy, and purpose, purpose being one of the key ones. So it sounds like that. Uh, one of the things that I always think also defines a leader is how they deal with firing people. And I assume in your in your in your boardroom role or in your kind of leadership role, you have had at some stage to uh, get rid of people, sack them, move them on. However, I don't know what the terminology is uh, nowadays. Uh, how do you feel about that? How do you approach that? What's your kind of approach to that issue? Yes, I've never enjoyed um, um, kind of letting people go, firing people. Um, I've never enjoyed it. I remember the first senior person that I fired. Um, I literally, I think I was teary, and the HR person had to literally get me out of the room because I was just embarrassing myself. Um, it's never good because what I tend to do is I tend to sort of think, oh, my God, what's the impact on this person, their livelihood, their life? What's it going to do to them? I kind of get into all of this, again, trying to understand people from their perspective. But as you, you know, sort of grow in business and grow in your career, it's just something that happens with time well before i sort of um um sort of off board or fire somebody that's kind of say a direct report within my team i spend enough time with the people laying the trail around where they are okay where we need to be so by the time we get to an outcome if the person's not performing they they have almost kind of elected that actually is a good thing for them i think most of the time but some people don't get it and it, it becomes a little bit messy. Mm. But I'd sort of say that when I've had to let people go, it became apparent to them um, and to me that ultimately it wasn't working or it wouldn't work long-term. And in many respects, they were often thankful. And there's people that I've had to let go within my organization that I'm still, um, there are three MDs that I'm, uh, within my organization that's left over the years. And you know, I'm still in touch with two of the three. And in one case, in one of the cases, I'm trying to help the person um, after them to kind of land in a role that's better suited to them. Because, you know, sometimes there's a disconnect. We want somebody to do here, do something that's kind of elevated here, but their skills are this level. I see the gap, but it's whether they see the gap. So it's about how do you narrow the gap so that we both see the reality versus, you know, something in the shop. I'm never one to like literally bang two days later, take action. It's you know, it's, it's over a period of time. Yeah, I'm always explaining that to my kids. So we, one of our kind of family viewing nights is The Apprentice. Mm. 
Uh, and of oh, course, yeah. that, the, the episode always ends with, you know, you're fired. You know, and I'm always saying to them, listen, that is not the way to approach dealing with people, right? You know, as you, you say, you're a lawyer. You've, you've, you're a lawyer that's dealt with employment, yeah. employment issues in the past, yeah. right? So it's probably not the smartest yeah, way. Yeah, definitely not from a legal point of view. But even even from that point of view, you know, I always think you should. Your a the ideal would be to if you mm-hmm. have to get rid of someone to do it in a way where if the opportunity came up another time they would still work with you. Sure. Yeah. And I have certain people that, again, this happened to, but there was that realization that there were a square peg in a round hole, mm. right? Um, they've kind of realized that. But it doesn't always go like that. There's some some situations where, you know, there's a complete disconnect, even though you've worked with somebody to try to get them to that point of an amicable exit, right? Um, they still can't see that there's a material gap. You always get that, but that's life. We're not all the same, right? Mm. And different people have different kind of personal views around where they're at versus where they're really at. You know, I, I heard you talk about um, you kind of, I guess, coach or mentor people. Um, we're mm-hmm. watching billions at the moment. And there's always the, there's a character, mm-hmm. Wendy Rhodes, who's like the performance coach. Do they, so do they have oh, things right, like right, that yeah. in that corporate world? Is there the equivalent of the performance coaches in house and talks people, you know, into the right state of mind, or is that just a, you know, poetic license? Yeah, I th- no, I think that you do. I mean, again, back to the analogy that if you sit in an organization that's 50,000 people, 75,000, you can't have a performance coach for everybody. Right. It's a little bit like people just kind of believe that everybody's talent. <laughs> like, let's be clear, right? Not everybody's talented. I know it sounds brutal, it sounds yeah. terrible, they're not. That's what I keep sort of saying to my um, team. There are people who are talented who you know, are currently kind of in a position here, but could go in a position two or three times above or two or three steps above where they are mm. today. And that's where I sort of say that you focus as a leader, you focus most attention towards them. And that's where you can give some of those people access to whether it's performance coach or, you know, like, uh, yeah, you give them like an executive coach, right, or performance coach to help them jump the two or three steps. Often people come to me, somebody's like low performing and they tell me, oh, can I, I think we should give this person executive coach. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) whatever issues that you deal with this person, even if you deal with them, they're never going to give us leverage in our business to be there. And that's where I sort through with people. Um, And and that's one of the things that um, I think defines a lot of um, um, what I do is I, tend to triple down on double down on or double down or triple down on talent or at least that i believe in mm. talent moves to the next level and that's when i sort of like give that the, the talented people access to more that will enable them to kind of move um to the next level but that, not everybody's talented do not kid yourself yeah not everybody is well i was going to say that was very much uh, the approach i know that steve jobs took uh was mm. he was he was really focused, some would say ruthless, mm. about surrounding his self with what he called his A, a performers or A players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was quite brutal in the way he would got rid of the B players. So that's a different side of things. Mm. Uh, but he, what his, his approach was, the more you create a team of talented people, the more they will figure out how to get things done to an incredible standard, mm-hmm. which is what led to, you know, iPhone, iPad and things like that. So it sounds like that seems to be your ethos as well as the importance of elevating talent within the organization. 
No, it is, but it's also recognition that B and C players can still do a job for you. Uh-huh. So tell me about that. Um, yeah. You know, because in the sense that if you're an organization, like I sort of said, you know, not everybody can be A players mm. because if everybody's A players and have attributes that are kind of similar, that can also create a level of dysfunction within your team. Right. And there'll be people who do like, and this is why I'm sort of saying, when I sort of say not everybody's talented, it doesn't mean that people can't do good work. Mm. So there are B players, C players within my organization who may have reached their natural level, but they're very productive at that level. And that is okay. Gotcha. Right. I think it's D and E and F players you've got to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not doing what they're meant to do or they're not performing or they're having too many mistakes. They're the ones you've got to work out of the system. But I think in an organization, you can't have an organization that's just filled with A players because if you have all A players that are the creative types or you know, the ones that are brilliant or the A types that kind of go, 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 mm. you're not going to have balance in your team. And one of the things I also say to people, diversity manifests itself in different experiences. Diversity manifests itself in different type of players, the A players with the B players and C players. Diversity manifests itself in also how we think. Mm. Right. So somebody who's an alpha will think, very different from somebody who's not. Right. And what I also to say, you've got to assemble a team where you have different views and perspectives because I always believe that that's ultimately leads to better decision-making, but also better kind of feeling for what a better outcome will be when you've got different people challenging it. So it's just my view. That seems to speak to, I guess, the culture that you try to create of of having that diverse, to, diverse opinion rather mm-hmm. than group think. Uh, how how do you manage? So again, thinking about you know boardroom level, how do you, I guess, either create culture, manage culture, lead culture? You know, what about that? Um, I would I would sort of say that um, anybody that's kind of seen me operate probably in the last ten years, every team that I've managed may have started out in you know kind of one period. You just got diversity of thought. Mm. And that comes from people's backgrounds. You know, that comes from um, people's experience of work. Um, That comes from, you know, like the communities that people come in, like my current management team. You know, when I took on uh, my current team, I think in terms of diversity, you had something like, I think it's two out of um, 14 people were diverse or three out of people diverse. Now I have 70, 80, no, I think it's 70% of my management team that's diverse. Mm. I have a Korean lady within my MD population. I have a lady that's an American um, Greek person. You know, I have, I just brought into my team a very talented Hispanic or Latino kind of talent. So what I've surrounded myself is people that have different contexts. And I've found, always found in my career that it's always helped give balance because I'm a certain type of person. I know that I, I'm very driven. I can be focused. But what I actually appreciate is when people sort of say, hey, Kenny, you know, you're driving this particular outcome in this way. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's always a good check and balance mm. to any leader. Um, and you, you've talked about um, bringing in diverse uh, peoples. Hey, you, so you've moved from the UK to uh, America. Mm-hmm. Uh, have mm-hmm. you seen or noticed any difference in that, i.e., how people operate in the boardroom in the UK versus how people operate in the boardroom or that level in America? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was in the same firm um, in the UK um, as I am in America. Mm-hmm. So I mean, moving geographically, I was in the same role. Um, so in reality, um, I'd sort of say um, that I didn't, in this current organization, I didn't see huge amounts of difference. I think it's more to do with, uh, for me, is in the enduring culture of the organization. I'm in, in an organization that is very, very strong on culture, okay. very strong on values. And, you know, what happens is if somebody comes into the organization, the senior that doesn't share those values, they never last for very, very long. And my old institution was in a different place. You could have people come in um, and they could do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, they were not held to account for that. One of the things that makes my, my current organization special is that we're very value-centric and you've got to adhere to the value of that. So I would sort of say how you operate in my old institution is very different from how I operate now. But I wouldn't sort of see that as it being on one side of the pond the country specific versus okay. another. It wasn't country specific. Mm-hmm. It's more the enduring culture of the organization. And so in my organization, is... before you... Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead, Sorry. go ahead. Yeah, my current organization you may have a thought about something that you're going to do that's dramatic. If you haven't spent time with leadership, socializing it, you know, kind of getting kind of feedback, getting buy-in, I'll tell people that it's better to invest that additional cycle up front because if you're trying to deliver something that's dramatic and then people are on one side, you're going to spend way more time trying to get it on the outside. So it's just culturally different. My whole institution, you could just literally have a big idea tomorrow bang yeah you go and then all hell would break loose here you invest the time you get people brought in and generally speaking they support you so i think the culture of the institution is kind of pretty key in terms of how you drive impactful things at a senior level in institution so what is that value or the key values that you would say where you are now um espouses or or lives to it's about the team winning. And often you see in organizations and other leaders where they win. If okay. you imagine a pyramid, yeah. right? The top is me, right? And then the bottom is the organization. Mm. No, no, no. For my current organization, it's about the organization winning and you at the bottom. It's kind of an inverted pyramid, right? right. You're at the bottom of it. And as long as you sort of understand that, because everything we do has to be for the purpose of serving the mission of the firm. And I think is when people kind of get that wrong and it becomes the cult of the individual or whatever, that's when it just doesn't work. But having said that, career-wise, my old institution are successful and this institution I'm successful. And that's also about you kind of flexing how you work, right, um, to the prevailing environment that you're in. You sometimes see people come into organizations they have no ability to flex. One of the things that I've managed to do over the years is almost kind of figure out culture. This is again watching, seeing the moment, seeing how things, and then just quickly adapting your style. So I've had to adapt my style materially. I would sort of say to um, to my own institution to where I am now. And some people who've made the transition from my old organisation to my current institution were like, "You kind of what happened to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're very patient. <laughs> you." you're very you know you're not driving as hard as you right. normally do and i was like no, no 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 you've got to drive with you know different focus yeah. in my current institution so yeah uh f- final question in kind of this uh area what are you 
what are you proudest of having achieved in your, I guess your life, your corporate life depends how you, you want to frame it. But what, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Um, I would sort of say is making um, the transition um, to being somebody who's a leader that has impact in every role that I've had probably um, for the last um, you know, 12 years. Um, the maxim I said earlier, leaders have impact. It's mm. about having impact in the role. And also specifically in leaving a legacy in the sense that when you leave that role, um, the organization that you had is you know, kind of better, more strategic, more focused, delivers kind of meaningful outcomes. That's the sort of the thing that I consider to be, you know, kind of the thing that's big for me mm. is that you come in, you've had impact, but your organization is stronger for it. There's nothing worse than an, a leader who comes in, has impact, and when that individual goes, the organization crumbles. That, yeah. for me, is, that for me is, is you know, it's just wrong. It's about, it's kind of ultimately just legacy, the legacy you leave behind. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what's guided my career in some ways. Um, and I'm hoping that um, when I get the opportunity to do um, a bigger and broader role, the legacy of, that I leave behind is um, stronger. Um, and well set for the next leader to take it to the next level. I have no doubt that it will be because, as I said, from the earliest time that I've known you, you have been driven. Um, and that kind of lived to a purpose a mantra that you've said that you kind of, um, uh, you know, that you live to. Uh, I think is is evident. So I'm I'm certain we will um, make that impact or have that legacy that you talk about, uh, which takes us uh, on. I mean, thank you for that because it was it's it's a really good insight into a world that you know by definition most people won't be um, because you know you are at that kind of top top echelon of the pyramid. So it's really good insight uh, for people. I want to now get a different insight into you. We're going to move on to our 10 question quick fire round. Uh, As I always say to my guests, there is no right or wrong answer. You don't have to agonize over any answer uh, at all. It's just to give us a little bit of an insight into you, I guess, in a different way. Uh, So 10 questions, uh, no right or wrong answer, just answer using your instinct as you talked about uh, without agonizing too much over it. Okay, you ready? Yep. Okay. So question one, if you could be the world's greatest artist or the world's greatest scientist, which would you choose? Artist. Okay, cool. Uh, Question two, on a scale of one to 10, how nervous do you get before a speech or presentation? Um, Probably three now. Okay, so one is is low, three is high, uh, 10 is high, right? So three. Yeah, three. Okay, cool. Uh, question three, love, wealth, or happiness? If you could only have one, which would it be? I think happiness. Cool. Yep. Uh, okay. Question four. Oops. My my microphone. Question four, favorite book, album, or movie, or all three up to you. Shawshank Redemption. Okay, cool. Movie is, that's the movie. There's a book as well, right? Is I think. It was a movie. Okay. The movie. movie. Okay. All right. Honestly, I've only watched the movie. I haven't read the book, if there is a book. Yeah, no, superb, superb movie. So funny, that's a movie that did not do well in the cinemas at all. Um, but, but just grew, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just grew yeah. in its reputation. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, question five, if you had to relive one day for the rest of your life, like Groundhog Day, what day would that be? 
I'd never want to relive a day that I've had before. I always believe that whatever the experience you've had is an experience that makes you stronger, whether good or bad. Interesting answer. First of its kind, actually. So well done. Uh, question six. If you could only listen, speak or see, which one would you choose? Okay, I think that's the most popular answer. Uh, question seven, if you had to choose one track or one song to walk out to or walk into the boardroom to to announce you, what track would that be? <laughs> I, can't, I can't think. I can't think. It's probably, it's probably like a, a song by Esperanza Spalding. Okay. For those of you who like cool jazz, yeah, she's cool jazz. one cool She's one very cool, cool person. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Calm, um, measured, smooth. That's kind go. of it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, question eight, I think. Uh, if you could live anywhere at any time in history, where would that be? Probably be in Salvador and Bahia, as you know, because oh, yes. you like Salvador and oh, Bahia. Yes. Favorite, favorite, favorite place. Yeah, love it, love it. Mid middle name of our child. So, uh, yeah. I know, yeah. I hear. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, question nine. What was your favorite period of life? Education, school, uni, uh, early work life, uh, or now? I would sort of say education. You're carefree. You're still trying to figure out who you're going to become. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and final question, question 10. Uh, which actor would would play you in the movie of your life? <laughs> Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. With the cool, calm, collected. There you go. There you go. Uh, I, I don't know. I thought you were going to say Idris Elba for a second. I don't know why that popped no. into my head. But, uh... Everybody's like Idris, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Idris yeah. this. Idris for Superman, Idris for, <laughs> for James, James Bond. Bond yeah, Come exactly. <laughs> now, nah, Morgan Freeman. Still got some work to do. Can't go wrong with that. Can't yeah. go wrong with that. Okay, cool. Perfect. Thank you for that. Yeah, just giving us a little bit of an insight into you. Uh, so thank you for taking care of that. Not too many, not stumped too much on 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 that at all. Uh, so final thing I want to ask is, uh, I'm sure people listening to this will want to check you out and see more about you or maybe even connect with you. Where is the best place for them to find you? Um, it's probably LinkedIn. LinkedIn got a profile there. It's pretty comprehensive and, you know, cool. that's where you probably see me best. Cool. Excellent. So uh, if you're listening, scroll down in the show notes, you'll see the link in there or just go into to LinkedIn and search for Ekena's name. You'll find him there as well. There is. So we, we have the kind of names where there's only one of us. Right. So, uh, in fact, actually, there's more than one of us. There's actually, uh, on LinkedIn? I've seen there's another, oh, really? not on LinkedIn. Uh -huh. I've seen another Ekena's leak and okay. I'm hoping it's not a 419 type thing. <laughs> You better check that out. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Anyway, listeners, I'll explain 419 one day if you don't know what that is. Um, so thank you very much. I can really, really appreciate that. Great, great insight uh, into communicating that high level leadership and all the, the things that go with it. Uh, the final thing I ask for my guests to do is to say goodbye in the language of their choice. Uh, so over to you, sir. It has to be the Igbo language, where I'm from, mm -hmm. Ijeoma, Ijeoma, which means goodbye, farewell. Goodbye. So farewell to your communicators. See ya. Excellent. Thank you very much, Akene. I really appreciate that. Thank you, communicators, for listening. I will see you on the next episode. Ijeoma. <laughs>